The Third World, Episode 7, A Lesson to All Other Leaders in Socialist Countries. Hey, Dobrodan, Mulibuanji, Zdravo, how's it? Alo, I'm Ruthie. I'm from Sarajevo to Red Africa. Welcome to our podcast about the people and history of the real Third World. Forget the telethons. The phrase, the Third World, came about as an act of defiance when several smaller and mainly post-colonial nations decided they did not want to choose between the Western First World or the Eastern Second World, but instead to choose their own third way. Alone, they could not rival the superpowers, but together they could be a force to be reckoned with. The nations of the Third World weren't merely poverty-stricken post-colonial backwaters. They had traditions of thousands of years of literature. They were the cradle of humankind and civilization, and they had fought hard battles for self-determination. And, even more, the events of the world today directly descend from the Third World's past. These stories have been overlooked long enough, and we're going to tell them to you here. In 1956, twin crises occurred simultaneously that brought the world sputtering to a near-diplomatic halt. Last episode, we discussed the Suez Crisis. This episode, we'll look at the other twin, the Hungarian Revolution. The fact of these twin crises caused a flurry of diplomatic activity, but also an incredible amount of pressure. On the one hand, the Soviet intervention in Hungary was brutal, and the West wished to cheer on and encourage those fighting the Soviet domination there. On the other hand, French and British troops dropping into the Suez at the same time made for a head-spinning dilemma. The issue was described eloquently by Lady Violet Bonham Carter. I'm one of the millions who, watching the martyrdom of Hungary and listening yesterday to the transmission of her agonizing appeals of help, immediately followed by our successful bombings of Egyptian targets, who have felt a humiliation, shame, and anger which are beyond expression. We cannot order Soviet Russia to obey the edict of the United Nations which we ourselves have defied, nor to withdraw her tanks and guns from Hungary while we are bombing and invading Egypt. Today we are standing on the dock with Russia. Never in my lifetime has our name stood so low in the eyes of the world. Never have we stood so ingloriously alone. Or, put more succinctly by Richard Nixon, we couldn't on the one hand complain about the Soviets intervening in Hungary and on the other hand approve of the British and French picking that particular time to intervene against Nasser. Neither of the twin crises came out of nowhere, although it may have seemed so to the casual observer whose main exposure to foreign news was the evening paper. In the case of Hungary, World War II had been an extended horror that saw the nation swinging wildly from a member of the Axis to tentative outreach to the Allies to Nazi takeover to Soviet Red Army defeat. And, as far as defeats and occupations go, it was a doozy. Post-war, a Stalinist dictator named Matthias Rakosi came to power using what he referred to as salami tactics. Put simply, several small actions whose effect equals a larger action that could not have been taken all at once. Rakosi, in addition to his less-than-stellar looks, Hungarians referred to him as baldy and asshead, and he did actually quite resemble a Nosferatu racked up quite the body count. During his time in power, he managed to execute 2,000 political prisoners, lock up 150,000 more, and expel 200,000 Hungarians from the Communist Party, 
a move which made them ineligible for better apartments and rations. He also oversaw an economic situation that was completely untenable. Hungarians were not only required to make compulsory contributions to the industrialization of the nation, but they were also required to pay reparations to Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and the Soviet Union, as well as paying for their own Soviet occupation. The occupation and reparations payments alone accounted for 22% of the national budget. Bureaucratic mismanagement and corruption exacerbated the issue, creating shortages of basic necessities. After about six years, there was some flip-flopping in the leadership, but in mid-1956, the writing was on the wall. Rakosi was so toxic that even the Soviets understood he had to go. He left for Moscow for medical treatment, but in reality was sent into exile. The problem was that Moscow chose one of his inner circle to replace him, and the gesture was not enough. When the Hungarians saw the success of a Soviet satellite demanding better treatment and getting it during Polish October, it emboldened them to act. It started small. On October 13th, students in Szeged formed their own student union rather than joining the approved communist student union. Then it went further. The independent student unions grew and spread. They created a list of demands for things like free elections and an end to Soviet occupation. On October 22nd, the Writers' Union joined them. On October 23rd, all hell broke loose, and the iconic Hungarian flag with the hole in the middle made its debut. A demonstration of 20,000 people took place at the statue of the national hero Josef Bem, where the head of the Writers' Union read a manifesto that was longer and more detailed list than the initial student demands. The crowd chanted band poetry and... This we swear, this we swear, that we will no longer be slaves. In response, the first secretary of the Hungarian Workers' Party, Rakasi's acolyte Erno Yero, gave a radio broadcast condemning the demands of the protesters. The protesters responded by pulling down the statue of Stalin, leaving only his boots behind. The action moved over to the Magyar Radio Building, which was guarded by members of the ABH, Hungary's secret police service. Rumors began circulating about the student protesters trying to air their demands and the AVH response. Scuffles broke out, and soon the AVH were throwing tear gas out the windows of the building and shooting into the crowd. When they attempted to resupply using an ambulance, protesters seized the ambulance and took the weapons and ammunition themselves. The Hungarian army was then sent in to quell the disturbance, but upon seeing the situation, Many tore the red stars off their uniforms and joined the protesters. The situation was out of control. First Secretary Yero sent communication to the Soviet Union asking for help to suppress a demonstration that is reaching an ever greater and unprecedented scale. The end of the first day offered no clarity to anyone. It was obvious that the previous circumstances could not continue, but no one had any idea of what the future would actually look like. The 24th of October brought Soviet Defense Minister Zhukov's answer from the Soviet Union at 2 a.m. Noon saw tanks rolling into position outside the parliament building. Imranaj was named prime minister, and he called for a ceasefire and implementation of the political reforms from 1953. It was not enough. Skirmishes continued and intensified, and it was on the 24th that Colonel Paul Malader sent to relieve troops fighting at the Killian Barracks 
joined the revolution. That same day, a group of AVH officers guarding the communist newspaper were overcome and viciously killed. Although the Soviet Union had still not decided on their course of action, the Soviet ambassador to Hungary was cementing what would later be known as his Hungarian complex. Overcome by the sight of those affiliated with the communist government hanging from street lamps and being torn apart, Yuri Andropov decided that socialist states showing any cognitive dissonance with the socialist cause, as defined by the Soviets, could only be saved by armed force. On the 29th, Soviet troops pulled out of Budapest. The Soviet leadership was wavering, but hopeful that there might be a way to salvage the issue politically rather than militarily. After all, Imre Naj was a strong communist himself. He had lived in Moscow in the 1930s and had been an informant during that time. He had been wounded in the fights against the whites when the Bolsheviks had come to power and had done jail time in Hungary for his political views. Besides, Mao Zedong was also counseling a political situation. His personal belief, aside from his opinion that Khrushchev was too immature and unrefined for his position, was that the USSR needed to loosen some of the draconian controls on Hungarian society. Not one socialist leader argued over the excesses of the Rakosi government. The rebels had a bit of a point. The Soviets even published a conciliatory statement on the question of Soviet troops, titled, With Typical Socialist Verbosity and Vagueness, the Declaration of the Government of the USSR on the Principles of Development and Further Strengthening of Friendship and Cooperation Between the Soviet Union and Other Socialist States. But the wheels of communist justice kept turning, even if slowly. Naj announced the end of the one-party system and said, My friends, the revolution has been victorious. We have chased out the Rakosi Yero gang. We will tolerate no interference in our internal affairs. No one told the Soviet Union to stay out of their internal affairs. That was a deal breaker. On November 1st, 120,000 Soviet troops re-entered Hungary. Their entrance drove Naj to what was possibly the most shocking political act of the Hungarian Revolution. The announcement that Hungary was withdrawing from the Warsaw Pact and pursuing a policy of neutrality. Along with that statement, Naj asked the United Nations for peacekeeping troops to protect them from the incoming Soviets. The help never came. It never even started out. There was no turning back from the consequences of the failing revolution. As NATO Secretary General Paul-Henri Spock put it, it was the collective suicide of a whole people. When the invasion decision was made, the Soviets then began traipsing to all the socialist and communist states to make sure there would be no surprises or misunderstandings. Mao now agreed with the decision for military intervention. So did the leader of Yugoslavia, Tito. But to obtain Tito's agreement, Khrushchev and Malakov had to undertake a tumultuous plane flight and then a boat ride during a raging storm to get to Tito's island of Brioni, which had hosted Gamal Abdel Nasser mere months before when the fuse leading to the Suez Crisis had been lit. The Brioni talks went from 7 p.m. until 5 a.m., and unusually for Soviet and Yugoslav meetings, very little alcohol was imbibed. Tito, who had to deal with a separatist threat in Croatia and a large community of Hungarians in Vojvodina, agreed with the military action, 
suggesting Janos Kadar as Naj's replacement and offering Naj asylum in Yugoslavia. Any question that the Soviets had possibly led to this revolution was met with Khrushchev throwing up his hands and exclaiming, they're slaughtering communists in Hungary. It was agreed, and the two Soviet leaders removed themselves from the Croatian coast in a storm still raging as fully as it had been during their arrival. After voting along with Naj to reject the Warsaw Pact and become a neutral nation, Janos Kadar was persuaded into the Soviet embassy. From there, he was flown to Ukraine and then to Moscow. When he returned to Hungary eight days later, it was on a tank, wearing new clothing, and wholly beholden to the Soviet Union. In the early hours of November 4th, the Soviet tanks reached Budapest. At 5.15 a.m., Imre Naj gave a final statement on the radio. In the early hours of the morning, Soviet troops have started an attack against the Hungarian capital with the apparent purpose of overthrowing the lawful democratic government of this country. He quickly left for asylum at the Yugoslav embassy, but free Budapest radio continued broadcasting. The last words broadcast were, You know all the facts. It is useless to comment on them. Help Hungary. Help. 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 And then there was silence. Soviet troops were firing indiscriminately on buildings and civilians for several days. The show of force was so overwhelming that even the socialist leaders who had agreed to something felt that what was done was overboard. On November 5th, a Soviet tank fired on the Yugoslav embassy where Naj and several members of his government were hiding, killing the Yugoslav cultural attaché Milenko Milyanov. This caused a huge reaction from the Yugoslavs at first, but behind the scenes machinations led to them labeling the incident, quote unquote, an accident. They later billed the Hungarian government for the damage. The Soviets declared victory in Hungary on November 11th. About 2,800 Hungarians, more than half of them below the age of 30, were dead. As the reprisals rolled on, an additional 22,000 were sentenced and imprisoned. More than 200,000 refugees fled to Austria and Yugoslavia. Estimates of 220 to 600 were executed. As the young fighters were dragged from their cells to execution sites, they shouted, Don't avenge me! Don't avenge me! in an attempt to quell the bloodshed. But there was still the question of what to do with Imranaj, who refused to resign from his office even though the Yugoslavs were putting tremendous pressure on him. On 17 November, it was decided that he had to be taken from the Yugoslav embassy, tried, and executed. In a message to Kadar, Andrei Gromyko said, We are fully in accord with your reply to our ambassador that Naj and the others hidden in the Yugoslav embassy should in no way be transferred to Yugoslavia, since they were the organizers of the counter-revolutionary demonstrations, and you cannot allow two Hungarian governments to exist, one in Hungary and one in Yugoslavia. The opportunity came on November 23rd. Janos Kadar, newly installed leader of Hungary, signed a safe conduct for Naj and other leaders to leave the Yugoslav embassy. When a bus arrived outside to transport them, the Yugoslav ambassador noticed it was full of Soviet officers. He protested, telling Naj he didn't have to go. But history doesn't record Naj's response. The ambassador attempted to stay on the bus with the Hungarians, but he was forcibly removed one block later. Much public gesticulating and preparation had to be laid, 
but in 1958, Imranaj was hanged in Budapest, along with several others who had been a part of the leadership of the revolution. They were buried upside down, bound with barbed wire, in unmarked graves. The United Nations, which failed to act on the part of Hungary, released a report in early 1957 before the executions of Naj and his fellow government members. Both the Soviet Union and Hungary refused to cooperate with the investigators. The report stated, What took place in Hungary was a spontaneous national uprising caused by long-standing grievances. It also mentioned in its conclusions that the Qadar government had introduced repressive measures and had no popular support. The final conclusion point was this. A massive armed intervention by one power on the territory of another with the avowed intention of interfering in its internal affairs must, by the Soviet Union's own definition of aggression, be a matter of international concern. No further actions were taken. The 200,000 refugees streamed overwhelmingly into Austria, and Austria struggled with the issue. The vast majority of them refused to return home, knowing the reprisals would be bloody and overwhelming. This was the first major refugee crisis of Europe since World War II, and it was handled brilliantly. Austria not only welcomed the refugees across the border, but before the end of the year had worked so closely with the United Nations Refugee Agency that most of those fleeing the Soviet clampdown on Hungary had been resettled in 37 different countries. It was a rare shining moment in the history of the twin crises. One of the least mentioned but most important people in the story of the Hungarian Revolution was not actually Hungarian, but Danish. Pavel Bong Jensen was a part of the United Nations Committee gathering testimony from the Hungarian refugees. He began to notice attempts by Soviets and Soviet agents at the UN to take the list of names that had provided evidence, a list that would open specific people and their families to horrendous retaliation in order to silence them. Although accused of being conspiratorial-minded by his superiors, there was a growing list of assassinations and kidnappings, referred to within the KGB as liquid affairs. Bang Jensen refused to hand this list over. He was continuously censured by the United Nations leadership and threatened. He was fired from his position. But in the end, he disposed of the list without its contents ever leaking to the public. He died in suspect circumstances in a New York park in 1959, officially a suicide, but most don't believe the official story. As always with our podcast, we have barely scratched the surface of the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, the Twin Crises, and anyone involved in these historic events. It would take far more than a 15 to 20 minute podcast to even begin to untangle the nuance of events, and I hope you'll use this as a jumping off point to continue researching. Please read more, go back further, and for heaven's sake, make sure you can find these places on a map. Zdravo, salani buino oke, ciao, au revoir, vidimo se, tozzi.